Hey, I'm Christina Rea, and welcome to Breaking Out of Breaking In, a practical filmmaking podcast about taking your creative career into your own hands and making great work that gets seen without playing the Hollywood game. Or at least while changing the rules. Hi, I'm Brie Castellini, your other co-host, and today we're breaking down the WGA. If you'd like to suggest an upcoming topic, send us a compliment, ask us a question, or otherwise get in touch, you can hit us up on Twitter or Instagram at BreakingOutPod, or via email, BreakingOutOfBreakingInPod at gmail.com. And if you want deeper dives into everything that we cover on this podcast, subscribe to our Patreon at Patreon.com slash BreakingOutPod. For just $3 a month, you'll get bonus content like templates, curated learning, custom infographics and more but enough of us let's talk about our wonderful guest for today's episode we are so excited to introduce you to our esteemed guest an alum of my graduate program and the vice chair of the latinx writers committee of the wga jorge rivera welcome welcome jorge thank you thank you for having me very excited to be here. So uh, I guess just to start off with some some introductions, when people ask you what you do, what is your answer? What do I do in the context of my professional life or within the guild? <laughs> uh, both, both, either. Uh, well, uh, I'm a TV writer and producer by trade. I've been out here in Los Angeles for about seven years uh, with, you know, trying to do that with varying degrees of success and some challenges like like many people face when they get here. About five years into that or two years or so ago, well, actually, once I started engaging the Guild out here as a member, I, I started attending what was called the Latino Writers Committee at the time as a member, uh, as a participant. And about three or four years into that, um, I threw my hat into the ring to be uh, elected as one of the leaders of, of that committee. And so I am the vice chair, along with two other chairs, my other two chairs, uh, Danny Tolley and Yvette Vargas, and we're the leaders of that committee. And, and we're part of a, a consortium of different committees that covers many different underrepresented groups, which is uh, a part of the Inclusion and Equity Department at the Guild. So it sounds like a very important uh, position. It kind of is to our community uh, in, in terms of the hierarchy of the Guild. It is sort of the, on the low rungs of the Guild, uh, but, but it's still very important, I think, work is being done at that level because we're sort of in the trenches with everybody uh, who is experiencing the, whatever they're experiencing as writers and, and, and Latinx people uh, within the writing community uh, of the Guild and in, in the entertainment business. So we can get a little deeper into that. Uh, I do want to say, though, everything that I talk about today is as a civilian. I, I'm not, I don't want to present to be a legal representation <laughs> of the Guild in any way but happy to talk about anything that I know about the guild in that context. Yeah, we will definitely get into like the nitty gritty of just like yeah. how the guild works. I think that a lot of people, especially aspiring screenwriters, see it as this like secret society mm -hmm. that they just <laughs> cannot figure out how to get into. Yeah. Like, what is the Illuminati signal I need to do? <laughs> um, but but let's take a step back for a second. So first of all, uh, what TV shows do you write for in case we you have un an unknown fans out there? And then we'll we'll talk a little bit like back in the beginning. Yeah. So what, where do you where do you write? I think my my biggest claim to fame in terms of scripted television was a show that was short-lived uh, on Fox television. I, I, I was the, uh, in the Fox Writers Intensive a few years ago, and out of that, I got uh, staffed on a show called APB, which, by the way, was show ran by Matt Nix. I know you guys, I don't know if you still do the Burn Notice podcast, but... I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm, we're in season five. Okay, there you go. Okay, so you might, you know, we might be, that might be an interesting topic to talk about a little bit, because uh, Matt was my boss for a little while during that, that period. Great boss, great experience, and I mean, scripted on the scripted side. That's mainly the the, the thing I'm mostly known for. I've done a lot of uh, work on the non-scripted side as, as a non-writing producer for a bunch of true crime shows before I really got actively involved in the guild here in the West. So I, I have a lot of credits in that space. But since then, the last the last three years have been interesting. Uh, partly because we did have a dispute with our agents that everyone fired their agents back in 2019, I think it was. Mm -hmm. So we were all agentless for two years, which was very kind of challenging, but rewarding. We, all, we, we won that fight in, in, in a big way. So even though it was a, a tough couple of years, we definitely uh, did the right thing. And, and then the pandemic hit. So it's been really tough to, to find work in rooms that not a lot of shows are in production or were like a lot of shows had shut down or, or kind of put the pause button on. So I've been doing a lot of development in the last couple of years, meaning uh, developing a lot of my own work and going out to sell it and pitch it and, and getting hired to develop other people's work, which is another 
sort of avenue of, of uh, employment that isn't really spoken about much uh, in the world. I think people focus largely on staffing and wanting to staff and climbing that ladder, which is obviously the crown jewel in many ways for TV writers. But there is a whole world uh, that exists outside of that that doesn't involve uh, being on a TV show, uh, which is, you know, the development world, which is getting hired and paid to to develop ideas that may or may not actually go to go into production sometimes. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. I bet that the the reason a lot of people overlook that is because like a lot of our listeners and Christina and I both very much come from like indie production. Mm-hmm. And so in the indie world, development is the free work. Yeah. <laughs> you right. you don't even have a hope of getting paid until you have like something fully developed and ready to bring to people. Yeah. So yeah, let's definitely dive into that. Sure. But um the the first anecdote that I want to talk about is um so we we both went to the same grad program. Mm-hmm. We both studied under Norman Steinberg, who is this wonderful storied writer in Hollywood and um, loves to brag about his students. And I remember him bragging about you Mm -hmm. in my cohort because I was, uh, I think, two and a half years after you. Mm -hmm. I was cohort five. You were cohort one. And um, when he realized that I was interested in web series, he was like, oh, you should talk to Jorge Rivera. Mm -hmm. He got into the guild with his web series. And so the way that Norman tells it is you wrote a web series. You hired yourself as a writer after filling in some paperwork. He wasn't clear (laughs) on that. And then bing, bang, boom, you were in the guild. So I'm curious from your side of things. How did you get into the guild? Yeah, well, it, it's that's almost correct. Um, the so it was 2011 ish, 2010 around that time. Well, let me even go further back. It was I first started doing writing and producing back in 2006 was the first thing I ever wrote and produced, and it was the wild, wild west for web series. It was. You know, YouTube was only a year old at that point. They launched in 2005. And like people were just making stuff and putting it up on the web. And it was really just really invigorating and pretty exciting. And it was brand new territory. And, the, you know, the only the only gatekeeper was really how, how much you were able to pay and feed your crew. Basically, if you could find a way to do that, you could shoot something and put it up on the web and people will watch it. And then there were all these emerging festivals that didn't exist prior. The New York Television Festival at the time, there was this thing called the In- Independent Television Festival in LA, and the LA Web Fest. All these different things started sprouting up. The we- the streamies and the webbies were brand new, so it was really exciting. Like people were paying attention and watching and consuming, and 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 I was flying to different festivals all over the country and meeting other web series creators. So it was really people were very collaborative and wanting to work together. So it was really exciting. And so I, I did that for a while, for many, for many years, and uh, eventually you know, decided that, that I wanted to write for television proper and wound up going, getting into Norman's program and graduating and coming out here. So that's, a long, that's the, the sort of the Reader's Digest version of it. But somewhere along the line there, the WGA East uh, was really paying attention to the, all of that and was really interested in signing people up into the guild through the, that work and trying to get people to uh, cover their web series as signatories. And so that was happening a, bu- happening a bunch. And I had produced my web series, a couple of them, and they had approached me and asked me if I was interested in doing that. So, but I didn't actually do it. I wound up not doing it for whatever reason. What, how, how I got into the guild was another web series, friends of mine who produced a series called East Willie B, which kind of was really interesting. It was a Latinx web series that took place in Williamsburg. It was about gentrification. It kind of, in some ways, was the prototype for many, for a few shows that have emerged since then on television. And those guys hired me under a signatory contract. But but people were doing the thing that that Norman said. People were creating their shows, covering it under a signatory deal, and then getting themselves into the guild that way. I don't know if that is exists anymore exactly that way. I think the guild at the time, especially the East was really excited about signing people in new media. And that they that that kind of loophole might have closed since then. I don't know. I have I haven't talked to anyone who's done it in a long time. Mm-hmm. So I was doing that for a while. It took me a long it took me many, many years to pay off my my I guess there's a an entry fee, <laughs> a couple of thousand dollars. Sure. Uh, but by the time, but by the time I reached LA, that that and and, and by the time I started actually working in television, th- all those things sort of converged, and I just transferred my my um, 
membership to the West, which was great. I'm really, really glad I did that. Only because I'm here physically and, and it, this allowed me to participate in, in the West in a way that I, I w- couldn't if I was an East member. I didn't realize they were so separate. I, I assume they were just sort of like, well, this is the office you yeah, come to if you're too. in the East versus it's, West. I, I don't fully understand that separation either, to be honest. <laughs> like, I, I think like, I think when it comes to things like negotiating uh, MBAs and, and negoti- negotiating with studios and, and, and networks and the whole ATA thing that we did, when it comes to big movements like that, suddenly they coalesce and they become one. But like, other than that, so they so they operate under the same contracts and stuff, but I think they like the the day to day business kind of is very separate, and so you you have to you either you're either east or west hmm. as a member. And I, I I when I moved out here, I wasn't sure if I was going to stay for the it was it took me about a year before I decided yeah this is working. And and about that it was around that time when I transferred. And can you really quickly define like signatory? Yeah. Uh, and what that means. Sure. So it's just, a signatory is basically someone who says, I'm going to do this project under the guild rules. And they and they fill out paperwork and they become a signatory. And the project that they're, they're doing is, is officially WGA and they have to play by the WGA rules and hire WGA writers and hire at those rates. And so that, that's basically, it's the difference between union and non-union. And I think it's the same thing sure. for, for actors and for, mm-hmm. for DGA, right? So like, you, you guys know you, you've done a lot of indie work. You know you may or may not have gone under those contracts. I don't know. It, it becomes more expensive when you do that, so a lot of people don't do it, and, and right. I understand that. But also, it opens up a lot of doors in terms of the quality of the people that you get on your projects, and also where and how you could screen the projects. So you know, at some point, you know, it, it, be operating in the indie world, you you probably want to avoid it to some degree, possibly because of money. But I think at some point, as a, a production company grows and wants to be taken legitimately and legitimate and serious they start you know engaging the the guilds in a a serious way and 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 i think that's important for for, it's it's good for everybody all around for sure definitely did you so your first gig that you got writing that was paid Mm -hmm. do you think that that came specifically because you were a member or Uh, would you have gotten it otherwise that's a great question let's see I got that gig because I came out of the writers, the TV, the the Fox Writers Intensive. That's how I got the gig. That's another way to get into the guild. If you do a gig, if you get hired on a gig like that, you kind of have to become uh, a a member if you haven't already, Mm -hmm. because it was a signatory production. So you, you can't work for the production if you're not. But but they allow you to become one. If if I hadn't been one, I would have been able to become a signatory. Uh, I mean, become a member. Sure, because you don't need to be a member to get into the Fox Writers Lab. No. No, but you do to work on a signatory show, and that was a signatory show. So, and you were a WGA member before the Fox Writers, kind of. Right? Yeah, I was an East member, but I was like like an associate because I hadn't really paid my finished paying my my, my membership. So it was like it's okay. like. But by the time I got an APB, all that stuff I had, I had transferred. I had paid my dues, I, my end membership fee, so everything was all lined up. So by the time I got an APB, I was I was a member. But before that, I was like this weird associate not quite full member status it was it was that moment it all kind of crystallized right around that time yeah so i'm curious about that in 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 interstitial associate time like mm-hmm. what from your perspective like made you want to you know go forward with the guild especially since you've been approached before and decided not to go with it and what did it like what opportunities did it afford you that you wouldn't have had otherwise so it sounds like apb was sort of a separate thing and you could you know you could have been or not been in the guild but what about that median time yeah i think well it's that's a really really great question as well because once you become a guild member you you really you're you're not supposed to do anything but signatory work. That means really, uh, that means legitimate studios and networks are hiring you. And for a while, like I think some people jumped a gun and they tried to get into the guilds a little ahead of schedule. I feel like there's a, there's a period of time when you're starting out as a new writer where you want to do as much work as you can to sort of cut your teeth a bit. And, and a lot of that work comes from the non-signatory world, right? right? Independent productions, independent web series, your own stuff, other people's work, you know, like student work, 
like when you come out of school, you, you just want to do as much as you can just to sort of build your, your skill set and your muscles. And if you're, if you're in the guild too soon, you kind of technically, legally, you're supposed to be turning that work away if, unless it's signatory, right? So I think there's a period of time where I think it could be too early. I, I suggest take a couple of years out of school and just do whatever work comes your way because it's great. You can get paid, you know, you won't get paid WGA rates, but you can get paid doing work for indie productions that aren't signatory for a little while right? and build your credit list. And I think that's an important thing. But at some point in your career where when you're actually working on, on signatory projects is when, and, and you only want to do that exclusively, is when you should probably join the guild because at that point you, you, you're turning away non-signatory work. So I think there's a gray area where people kind of jump ahead of themselves. And I think the, 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 the tipping point should be this. I think you should spend a few years as a writer out of school doing just as much work, any kind of work, writing work that comes your way. And there's a lot floating around out there that's not signatory. And you should do it. You should take it for a while and build your credit list. And then, and then one day, you know, that, 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 that sort of legitimate signatory gig will come and then it's time to, to jump in. And, and then you can't, you got, you kind of have to like not look back towards the non-signatory work anymore. You, you're, you're not supposed to take that work because it's, you're, you're now a union member and you want to play by you, you know, union rules and support the union efforts. So what was the question? <laughs> the question, <laughs> the was, question was, what were what were you doing in that in-between time where you were still paying off your dues yeah. that you couldn't have done before? And did you find that it was a valuable period of your life? Yeah, yeah. I was, ta I was, take I was taking a lot of non-signatory work. I was doing some, I was doing some uh, unscripted work. I did a lot of work in the true crime space as a non-writing producer. So I did a lot of that work that during that time. So yeah, I think there's a lot of, there, there's... A lot of stuff you could be doing. A lot of work out there that's non-signatory. That's what I would be doing, like just that kind of work and building credits. Because once I got into the guild, I kind of had to like like leave that stuff behind, and and that's fine. A lot of young writers before they build their credits and before they build their before they're sort of accepted as a professional, jump into the guild. But but it's a kind then it's tough because you're in this place where like you haven't really proven yourself yet. So like, it's really hard to get signatory work unless you've mm -hmm. proven yourself. So if you have taken, had taken the time to build a credit list and you have a nice little IMDB profile with like five or six credits on there, then you're, it's easier to be taken legitimate, legitimate as a legitimate writer once you make the leap. Some people do that before they have credits and then, you know, they have nothing to show for it. And it's harder to get those gigs, believe it or not. But once but once you get into the guild, the I think the value is manyfold. Personally, what I love about it the most, I mean, not not only do they fight really hard for 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 writers' rights. I mean, we just won a big, big victory over our agents in packaging, right? That was like huge. We were getting really screwed, and you know, strength in numbers, and it was very dramatic. And there was a contingency within the guild that kind of was arguing with the the the, the larger battle you know the larger leadership so it was really like stressful but like the smarter you know people prevailed and we won and and now we have this great piece of you know a victory that against uh, a really bad practice like pra packaging was basically uh, agents double dipping that they were taking our 10 percent, but also taking money on the back end for putting together packages uh with other with, with other talent and it was really it was kind of illegal mm -hmm. so i get so on that level there's that there's just the the leadership it's solidarity one, the solidarity just the protections that are in place like it's it's a constant battle like like new things are emerging now like you know that we're trying there's always a battle coming that we're fighting against because like the entertainment business is fun and, and amazing and gratifying as it can be it's like um you know, studios and networks aren't always looking out for the best interests of the talent and the writers. So, mm -hmm. so having a, a, an organization at the guild, like the guild is amazing to, to, to have that protection. So there's that, but like, so there's those logistics and that kind of those policy things, but on a personal level, it's been an incredible community, like just unbelievable. Like I have hung out with, met with, have become friends with some of my all time writing heroes. You know, and, you know, generally people are very open and very, you know, open to meeting new writers and, you know, getting to know new writers and uplifting new writers. And so that, so that community has been amazing. Like, like 
incredible. Like I never really, I didn't expect it to be that way. So everyone talks about how the entertainment business is like, it's who, you know, relationships. That's partly true. Like, yes, there's some nepotism, but, but, but that, what that means, like when people say that they immediately think nepotism, like, you know, Joe Schmo is going to hire his nephew's, you know, cousin, (laughs) that kind of nepotism, which I think happens. It's, you know, but I think largely the who, you know, thing is really about relationships and the reason that's important is because people want to surround themselves with people they trust, people that they know are good at their jobs, and people who are not insane, you know, who aren't toxic. <laughs> that's what generally people want. And that's why it, the, the who you know is important. And it's not because, like, I want to help my friend who isn't talented and sucks. It's mostly because I want to surround myself with the people I know will not screw me over, will, 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 will carry the ball that will carry their weight, will will be generally easy to work with, you know, that I'm not going to go home, like, wanting to scream into a pillow every night over their behavior. That's what that means. Trust. Sure. And the, the guild has been an amazing place to, to earn that trust and to build that trust and to build those relationships with. Because I, I rub shoulders virtually and physically with, like, people who have written, like, some of the most amazing television ever, you know, like, and... And it's genuine. It's genuine, genuinely reciprocated, you know? So that's really, I think, the most amazing thing about the Guild is that I, I didn't realize that going in. But as I started to attend panels and events, and as I became involved in creating panels and events for the Latinx community, you know, those those relationships kind of organically just sprouted. And, you know, I feel like uh, I have allies who will either hire me or will advocate, advocate for, for me at the right time, right? All, all of those things. And, uh, you know, it's it's those things have happened. And I've done that for other people too. I've done that for up and coming writers. I've done that for people outside of the guild too, like to up and coming writers who aren't in the guild yet. Because like it's, it, it becomes such a, the good people in this industry, all each, every single one of them have gotten some kind of help somehow. Somebody's gotten some help from somebody. No one's done this like in a vacuum. And the the, the good people remember that. And, and pay that forward. And it's a, and there's a culture of that. Like if you're spending any time on Twitter, especially two years ago when the ATA movement was happening, there was this whole WGA solidarity thing. And then there was a pre-WGA thing, like, like upper level WGA writers were helping pre-WGA writers. It's a cult, it's a, it's a culture of altruism and help, you know, helping each other and uplifting each other. And as, as, as much as we hear these horror stories, about awful showrunners and awful producers, I think they are very much in the minority, in my opinion. I think so. It, it, sure, that stuff exists. There's this article in LA Times last week about a certain agency. There's been a couple of, there's a showrunner that was in the news yesterday. In the news yesterday. There was a producer that was in the news a couple of weeks ago. And we all know, you know, about the Me Too movement and one of the monsters in that, in that world. So like, they exist, sure. But I think, I've been lucky. I, just anecdotally, I've been, I think the majority of people that I've met have been fantastic. And I think that's the culture that the Guild tries to achieve. And I think they're mostly successful at doing that. And that's really exciting. That's encouraging. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Did you have representation before you were in the Guild or did it come after? It came after. Uh, it came because I was in the, in, in the fellowship. And I highly recommend the fellowships. Like there's, again, there's a, a lot of debate on Twitter about whether they're effective or not effective. And it's like anything else in the world. Like some, you know, not not everything's perfect. There's a pro, there are pros and cons, but I also think that they've launched some huge careers. Like like some, some of the big names that you admire, like a lot of them, I find out years, years later that they were in fellowships mm-hmm. and, the, and it blows my mind. So, and I personally have experienced them and thought they were useful. You know, got my first gig through one one of them. So I highly recommend them. I think they're, you know, they're valuable, but take everything with a grain of salt because some people go through those experiences and do really well and others don't. And so it's really just, it has a lot to do with what you put into it, but also has a lot, like, you know, luck is a lot, it has a lot to do with just good fortune. Yeah. You know, there are a lot of great writers in this world who ne- who are never discovered. So it takes a, a bunch of things. It takes effort. It takes talent. It takes help. But also, unfortunately, the stars need to align 
to you sometimes in order for things to work out. So do you remember your application to that yeah. uh, fellowship? Do you remember like things that maybe you had tried before that hadn't worked that finally worked? Like any high level advice that you can give on applying for fellowships? Cause it's kind of fellowship season. Yeah, no, I do. I do this a lot actually, because I had, I had been applying when I was still in Norman's program all the way as far back as like 2011 or 2010 is when I first started applying I would apply every year. I applied every year for about five years in a row, <laughs> and and I get re- I would get rejected, get rejected, and and then the last time I f- I applied, I was out here in in L.A. and I think that made a difference. That was part. I think that the first thing that made a difference, I think, was that suddenly there was a L.A. address on my applications. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I I honestly think that they take that. It, partly into consideration because they want people who are committed, who are serious, who are out here, who are, are going to do it by any means necessary, whether they get into an, a, a fellowship or not. That's one thing I think that they, it rings bells for them. That's one thing. And I also was getting better and better as a writer. Like I started working with Jen Grisanti at some point in that mix. I don't know if you guys are aware of her. No. Jen Grisanti is a pretty well-known, like a teacher, writing teacher, TV writing teacher. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'll email you her information. Or you can look, you can just Google her, Jen Grisanti, G-R-I-S-A-N-T-I. And she has, she runs a business. She's a former television executive. She worked under Aaron Sorkin. She now has a career um, as a teacher. She teaches all these online programs. I studied with her one-on-one. She's actually the the writing teacher for Writers on the Verge, which is the NBC oh, cool. program. Okay. And she's really great. She's really like working with her was probably this thing that probably boosted my writing intelligence, my IQ for story and writing. Because I had been writing a lot up until then, doing a lot of digital stuff, right? And but I but but television has a very specific DNA, especially pilots. And mm-hmm. unless you know what to look for and what to bake into your pilot script, unless you know it. You don't know what you don't know. And so working with her, I kind of figured out what I didn't know and my writing got a lot better. So by the time I, I, I came out here at the LA address, my scripts were better. And then I got, I was a semifinalist in NBC, ABC and I blew it. I'll tell you the big mistake I made. So ABC, uh, and a lot of them, a lot of them do this. They, they will, actually, I think all of them do this. They, once you get to a certain level, so, you know, semifinalist, finalist, and then, you know, whether you get in or not. Sure. And so I was a semifinalist my first year in LA. I was super excited. I'm like, oh, this is great. Finally, I'm going to get in. And basically what they do is they, 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 you do a phone interview. And my phone interview was going great. I was having a really great conversation with the person on the other side of the phone. And then they asked me, what shows on ABC do I watch? And where do I see myself writing <laughs> on the, one of their shows? And I drew a fucking blank and I was like, uh, uh, I just wasn't prepared to answer that question. It's a legit question because they want to know Mm -hmm. those programs are basically about them placing you on their slate somewhere on their shows. And for whatever reason, I mean, I I, I did watch some ABC shows. I just (laughs) didn't like realize it, you know, kind of, I I didn't think, I wasn't thinking about it in this, in that context of that question. So I drew a blank. And I, I kind of like haphazardly answered and it was a shitty answer. And I think I got dinged and I didn't get in. Mm. But since that, at that point, that was at that point, a, a good friend of mine who did get in that year told me some great advice. She's like, well, you're now on all of their radars because they track each other. They track all the participants and the entries and they, they, they trade notes. And she was like, you're on, on all of their radars now. You're semifinalists. You didn't get in, but you're semifinalists. You should reach out to all of them, all of the administrators and asked them out for coffee, and I did. And so I went, I did a little tour with everyone from like CBS, ABC, NBC, Warner Brothers, whatever else there was, there was, I'm missing a few, but, and I sat down with them and I asked them, you know, what they're looking for, what's a good application. So I wrote all that stuff down and I'll share what I learned, but the next year I applied again and then I got into Fox using everything I learned. Just before you get into that, did you use the same samples? The second time um, around? 
It depended. Uh, I was trying to write new samples every year and you, everyone should write samples every year, new samples every year. And the other thing is that a lot of them, a lot of the fellowships still ask for specs of existing television shows. Mm. That's, that's happening less and less. I, I, I think writers should do specs for a little while because it's a good, it's good practice. It's good muscle building. Even to this day, like you may not get read, but like that's the job, you know, writing someone else's show. So you should practice mm-hmm. doing that. Anyway, so it was a mixture, like whatever I had that year is what it went out. You know, if I had a new one, it went out. If it, if I didn't have a new one, it didn't, you know, I used something, I, I re, I reused, reused something. I don't recommend reusing something, but I just did that. I was like, I felt like it was better to at least be in the mix than not at all. But, but, mm-hmm. but what, 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 what wound up happening is that I kind of staggered my content, my scripts, like, like every year I would send the new ones out to who didn't get, I, who, you know, who didn't get that last year, or I would send the old one mm-hmm. out to who didn't get that last year, and then everyone else would get the new one. I, I was doing some kind of juggling like that. But that year, Fox had not gotten the script that I had written that year. It was, brand, it was fairly new, I think. And so I sent it to Fox, and, and I got in. But what I learned, and what I tell everyone is this, your fellowship essay is 100% absolutely also a writing sample. Like they will read that and judge that as a story. Mm-hmm. And so you have to tell a really good story about yourself in, sto- in story form. You know, you don't want to be like, I grew up here. I went to the school. I won this award. I produced this thing. I got, you know, I moved here. You don't want to do that. You want to be like, when I was a kid, I saw a dead body fall out of a building <laughs> And it changed me. It made me want to be a, a crime writer because I wanted to know who threw that body out the window. Right. And I was so terrified, but I, I faced my fear and, and, I, and, I, and I moved forward and I did that. And because of that experience, I like to write intrepid, roving reporter kind of like characters who will always get to the bottom of a mystery. And by the way, here's my sample that shows exactly that. Here's my sample of the Raven Reporter doing exactly that. Oh, and by the way, I love your show about the Raven Reporter who, who goes, who studies <laughs> mysteries and won't back this down. Is such like a Twilight Zone moment because this is literally a conversation Christine yes. and I were having yesterday because I'm a mystery crime writer and I I've more I've almost only recently discovered like that's the brand. All yes. right, that's the brand I'm going for. Well, and so I like sending Christine in personal <laughs> essays of like, all right, what childhood story yeah. makes me sound most like a future crime writer? Exactly. That's exactly it. That's exactly. <laughs> what you should be doing and i'm not saying that every every essay has like there's this whole debate on twitter about trauma porn right it's not it doesn't always have to be about trauma it could be something really hilarious but you want to tell your Mm -hmm. origin story why are you a writer why did you become a writer like what event in your life made you want to do that and what is the theme of that story and Sure. That should be the theme of your pilot that you're submitting. And it should also be the theme of the shows that you're interested in work writing on that's on their slate. So there's a through line, a, a thematic through line from your experience to your material to the things you want to do, specifically on their network. And sure. so, th- yeah, actually, ABC now has that as a, a separate essay yes. is you have to do a staffing pitch. Yeah. So instead of you just having to, like, hopefully remember that you should know what shows are on ABC, yeah, they, they now actually make you pick one. They, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I'm probably the person why they fucking started doing that. <laughs> the They're like, we like Jorge, but like, yeah. we got to make no, sure because I screwed that up because I screwed <laughs> it up. And now they don't want they're trying to help people from not screwing that up. But that's basically the idea, I think, is that, you know, you want to know, you want to tell a good story about yourself, whatever that is, like a, like real crafted as a story, short, you know, a paragraph or two. You want to connect it to your pilot, to your material that you're sending in thematically. And you also want to connect it to something that's on their slate because that sure. shows that you know your voice, you're a good storyteller, you know your voice, you know where you want to be, and you're doing, you're helping them do their job because they're saying, oh, Breeze would be perfect for that show, you know, you know, mm-hmm. or shows like that. Yeah, you want to give them a package that they can sell yeah. because ultimately they have a vested interest in you being good yeah. and them having an easy time placing you. So exactly. that totally makes sense. Yeah. And, and also when you get into meetings, when you start doing showrunner meetings and general meetings, like you're just doing an oral version of that exact thing. You're telling mm-hmm. a, a stories about yourself to another human being across sitting across a desk, 
and you're and you're trying to find a way to connect that to their material you know you're like you're basically doing exactly the same thing but towards a human being and about the show that you want to write for just saying true things strategically yeah yeah <laughs> you're it's you, it, look 60 percent of this job is salesmanship not only yourself <laughs> not only yourself but your own show and your own ideas and if you're in a room your pitches you know like it's you, you it's about being able to communicate people to people that you're a good storyteller, that you have good ideas, that you have interesting takes on the world. And and you don't have to be, you know, your story doesn't have to be sh- incredibly shocking or like trauma porn or or anything like that. It just has to be you. When I got into the Fox, when I finally got into Fox program, we had a meeting of all the new writers who got in. It was 12 of us. And we sat around in the circle and, and, and everyone at a table and everyone was telling their personal stories. Oh, you know, I, I grew up here. I did this. I did that. The guy that went right before me was a Nigerian prince who got who got kidnapped and was held ransom for ransom. Oh, my God. Yeah. So <laughs> that's that's what I had to follow wow. with my shitty story of whatever I told. I can't remember what I told. But it was but what I'm saying is but like everyone, everyone has interesting parts of their lives, even if like like I remember when I first started doing this process you know, kind of mining my own personal life for what was interesting about it. I was like, I, I felt really inadequate because I was like, I have nothing interesting to say. I don't, nothing's ever interesting happened to me. But the deeper I dug in, I realized the things that happened to me were interesting in a, in a different way. You know, they weren't, I wasn't in a military family. I wasn't like, you know, my parents weren't doctors. No one in my family was a serial killer, but you know. <laughs> bummer. Yeah, bummer. <laughs> but I found, but I found things that were interesting to me, and that who were formative to me, and emotionally powerful. You know, and that's really what the job is: is making an emotional connection with your audience. Right. Yeah, that's great. That's yeah. a great piece of advice. So, if you're a writer who's also a director, and you maybe have, like, in terms of passion, are they're equal for you? But you want to pursue the writing path, and you want to maybe go after these fellowships or just generally get into meetings and pitch. Do you think that writers who also are directors should sell themselves as primarily writers? Or can you kind of be honest about your passion and ability to do both? I think it depends on the path. The entertainment business is is big and there's a lot of different ways. If you ask a hundred different writers and creatives how they went down that path, you'll get a hundred different stories. Obviously there are multi-hyphenates and that's really, mm-hmm. that's, that can be great. I think it depends. I think if um, you got to kind of figure out what works for you. For me, I have directed a little bit, but I, I don't have a huge interest in it. And so I, I, I chose to be very specific about what I wanted to achieve and what I wanted to do and how I wanted to present myself down to the fact that like, you know, not only am I a TV writer, but I'm a drama writer and an hour long. And not only that, but I really specify on on kind of three different areas like crime genre and music stuff. Like that's the stuff I really like. Um, And that's not Mm -hmm. what I do really well. So that's worked for me because it's helped my reps and helped me sort of like present myself to the, the entertainment world and, and, it's how people kind of figure out where to put me. And, and I think most people should do that. But if you're really, if you really are like strong, a strong director and you're doing stuff and you're making stuff, you know, then you should put yourself out there in the world as a writer director. But that, but that could, that's going to lead you towards being a feature person kind of, because that happens mostly mm-hmm. in features, right? So you kind of have to look at where you want to be and kind of figure out what, what's the best story to tell to get there. Not that you can't go and not that writers don't direct. I, I've seen writers after they've gotten their foothold in the writing world and have showrun or whatever that have gone and directed episodes, right? Mm-hmm. But I think the whole, the writer-director thing, I think the, that, that image that that projects is, a, is, is kind of something that you see a lot in the feature world. So, you know, if you want to be a feature person, I think that'd be a great way to position yourself. But if you want to be, and then maybe transition later. Yeah, you've made your you can always grow somewhere. later. Like once you have success, like right. you could do whatever the hell you want to a larger to, <laughs> to some degree, right? But in the beginning, in the early days, you really have to be like, this is what I do. This is where I want to be. Because like executives, reps, managers, producers are meeting a million people a day, and they mm-hmm. want the shorthand, right? They want to they want a good story that you're going to remember. They're going to remember you by, and they want to know what you do, so they so they can. Re- make a quick note about you. So when an opportunity comes up, boom, they can match you. 
and, and get you wherever that fits, wherever that happens to fit. I, in the early days, that shorthand is very powerful. And I know people hate it. I always hear like, oh, I like writing comedy. I like writing drama. But it's like, okay, well, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're not helping yourself in the early days by being that mm-hmm. ambiguous and that sort of unfocused. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I had a question about um, how the Latinx Writers Committee sort of functions. Sure. Like what what does it mean to be a committee in general? Yeah, yeah. What is your role at that committee? Yeah. Uh, and then we'll, we'll wrap up with some some grad school talk, sure. unless Christina has any other questions. But yeah, let's talk about Latinx Writers Committee. Sure. How did you get involved? Yeah. What is it? How does it work? Sure, sure, sure. So the, the Guild has this department called the Inclusion and Equity Department. And basically... They are focused on uh, issues around diversity and inclusion and, you know, making sure that things are fair and equitable. They do a lot of reporting. Uh, they generate a lot of reports on the state of diversity in the industry within the guild. In that department, there are something like nine committees devoted to bolstering, highlighting, and uplifting their represented members. And... I'm going to get this wrong because I'm not going to remember them all, but but there's a Black Writers Committee, there's an LG, LGBTQ committee, there's the Latinx committee, there's Women's Committee, there's a Career Longevity, which is for old writers over a certain age, there's the Disabilities Committee, there's, did I say Asian? There's an Asian committee, Middle Eastern, Muslim. I think I might have hit them all. I think those are all of them. I'm sure I'm missing something and I'm going to get an email from somebody complaining <laughs> that I missed it. But but it's basically these groups that meet every other month and they're open to whoever wants to attend. Like you don't have to be from one of those represented groups. You can go and attend and be an ally and listen and find out how you can help. Or But, but, but the majority of those committee members are people from those underrepresented groups. And so the idea is just to keep a pulse on the issues that are happening that are, affect their group members, keep a pulse on those issues and, and try to create programming and help with informing policy within the guild around those issues, like what's going on in the trenches. So the meetings will happen every other month or so. And during COVID, we'd have them on Zoom. And sometimes we'd have like a hundred people showing up to these meetings. Basically, you know, the, it's, it's it's sort of a, a community gathering, but also with with some real with some very well defined and structured uh, programming to help move the needle for writers. Like we will do things like have these meet and greets with showrunners, where showrunners it's kind of like speed dating. Showrunners will show up, will come up. We'll do we've do, done these on Zoom recently. Like the Zoom, you know, we'll get we'll set up general Zoom meetings for our members with with. With showrunners, so a showrunner will commit, and they'll do like four meetings, and we'll you know we'll get like forty showrunners to do this, and so like suddenly we've got one hundred twenty meetings happening um, for our members, something like that. If, I, if the math is right, so things like that, and and panels. You know, we just we did a sit down with Netflix recently to ask them about their efforts with the, you know, to talk have a conversation about. about Latinx representation at Netflix. We were we're doing a anti-bias workshop in 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 next month. You know, we're addressing sort of anti-bias issues or bias issues within the community within the Latinx community. And so all of the committees are doing these kinds of things. But they're also they're also a touch point for that for the community for the community outside of the guild to a certain extent. Like for example, when all of the uh, George Floyd protests were happening this year and those tragedies were happening and they, 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 they haven't stopped happening, but like the Black Writers Committee wrote an open letter to Hollywood and, uh, about those issues and, and representation on screen, you know? So that's another thing, like we're trying to find, find ways to keep the studios and networks sort of honest and account, held accountable for representation, like on, on screen and behind the screen. So it's a, it's a whole bunch of different things, but at the end of the day, it's really about trying to move the needle for underrepresented groups and ours specifically for Latinx writers. That's great. Yeah. That's awesome. And what what is the role of the vice chair? Uh, it, I don't know. When I figure it out, I'll let you know. <laughs> great, no, perfect. it's like uh, I, 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 it's it's a little amorphous. Like there's no like hierarchy. There's three of us, right? There's a, two chairs and a vice chair, and basically. 
we we hold a meeting. Our responsibility is to hold a meeting every other, other every other month, and also to report on what we're working on. So this is what we have coming up. Like, and 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 each of us will take on uh, different different um, events. Like, I'm producing the event for anti-bias, the anti-bias workshop, and it's going to be a three-part workshop where we're going to have uh, this group called Soul Focus Group, which is a really great organization that basically holds workshops for identifying racism and giving tools to the participants of those workshops to deal with racism from both ends as a perpetrator and as a recipient. So it's like, it's like, you know, just awareness workshops. That's, that's, that's what I'm working on for our community. And then like Yvette was in charge recently of doing the, the Netflix thing. So she produced that whole thing. She did the outreach to the, to the executives, you know, they organized the date, they organized the, the, the agenda. That was her thing. And, and uh, Danny recently did something. There's an organization called the Think Tank for Equity and Inclusion, which is a, a separate organization, but many guild members are part of that organization. They also create advocacy and awareness for uh, representation on camera. And they publish these really great reports, these, these fact sheets, like how to represent Latinx people on camera while avoiding cliches and the do's and don'ts. Mm-hmm. If, you know, here's a list of things you, you're doing. If you're, you know, if you're doing these things, you're fucking up. And here's a list mm-hmm. of things to how to do that, how to do that correctly, you know, how to represent groups. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things they do. And so like Danny has been involved with uh, p- putting together um, panels with that group, talking about the work they do and how to use the fact sheets. And then we invite, sometimes we invite executives to come to our meetings and, and talk about the efforts they're doing to, to represent Latinx content. So it's like, it's the, the, the chairs are basically wrangling these events and, you know, and, and listening to members needs and sort of trying to address their needs. It's not, it's not really a, it's not a power position like someone on the board would be. It's more like a community activist kind of like position. Sure. Yeah. You you deal with the logistics of bringing everything together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I'm not involved directly with any of the big things like you know the ATA negotiations, anything like no policy work per se. Sure. But but like what I do directly affects the community, which I find really gratifying. I, I help people. I think I help Latinx writers raise their profile and hopefully get get hired because of that somehow. That's awesome. Yeah. That's really cool that you've you found that that niche for yourself. Yeah. So final big question about the WGA, Jorge, is were there any misconceptions you had about being a member that you have since been disabused of? Um, and even more broadly, like, do you think there are widespread misconceptions about the WGA that you would you would like to disabuse our writing audience of? I'll answer that in two parts. I'll tell you what I think, but I'm also interested in hearing what, what some of the misconceptions are, but maybe we could talk about some of those. But I I think that I already kind of touched on this was that I was really surprised by the community that I found at the WGA. Like I, I really expected the entertainment world to be largely kind of clicky and, and hard to fucking and hard to break through, you know, had to hard to sort of make connections with people. And, and, and I found through the WGA, it was like largely the opposite. Like I found it to be like, wow, I am actually meeting people who are actually really friendly and want to be really helpful and are asking me how my career is going and, you know, things are open to sitting down and having coffee. And, you know, so I found that really surprising. Not that Hollywood is, has, is opening a red carpet to everybody. It's, it, it is tough. Like we, even, even though I have those relationships, it doesn't mean that the carpet is wide open for me for the gigs. Right. So I think the community is there. People are helpful and people want to advocate, but, but like getting the gigs and, and, and keeping your career going is pretty, is pretty hard because there's a lot of people who want to do it and the jobs are fine and the opportunities are, the number is finite. So it's not, you know, an infinite number of jobs. So that's still a challenge. But I think the thing that I was surprised mostly about was just like being able to say hello to people who are put on a pedestal as a celebrity writer, finding out that they're just human beings. And that's awesome. Right. That's that's very encouraging. Yeah. That's a that's a very <laughs> encouraging anecdote. Yeah, yeah I, I think from my impression that like the big misconception or maybe not of just the idea of the WGA is that once you're in, you you get sent a list of jobs you can apply for every week and mm-hmm. you are now a shoe in for them and no. nobody else gets this list. No, absolutely not true. <laughs> it's hard, man. Yeah. No, it's hard. There when the when the ATA thing happened, 
the guild put some money into creating this database that people use and it was very robust in the early days people did like showrunners were putting up open calls for jobs uh, on this thing and people were applying to them people were getting hired so like it basically replaced our agents for a little while but once the agents came back i uh, you know people have been using that less and less and so that that you know that's not as, as useful anymore so so it, you know if the rumor came that if the rumor started that there was a list of jobs it probably came from that from that database sure. but it doesn't really it served a purpose for for as a as a band-aid during a time when we needed it it's not really used anymore very much so like it's we're really kind of relying on our agents again but here's the thing the agents get the lists of jobs that are available sure and they put their clients up for those jobs but it's no way is it a shoe in you know you're competing with everybody else in the guild for those jobs you really are so as friendly and supportive as, as, as everybody is, it's like there is competition, you know, like I think it's friendly competition. Being in the guild is no way a guarantee that you're going to work. There's lots of people who who haven't worked for many years, who want, like Glenn Mazzara tells a story about how he got his first job like on Nash Bridges and then that ended and then he didn't work for like two years. Like he tried, because he could, but he couldn't get, he couldn't pay someone to like to sneeze on him. And uh, <laughs> And then he got hired on the on the shield because of his relationship with the showrunner. You know, it's not a shoe in at all. Like I wish it was. I wish it was, but it but it isn't. That's that's definitely a misconception. Yeah, I, I think it's just a matter of like you know, to your point, you asked a hundred different writers how they got in, and all of them have different stories. And I think that there is because the you know, U.S. education system functions in with a, the assumption that like you get a degree to get good at a skill, you get an entry level job using that skill, and then you move up the ladder. And that's not really a th it's not that linear no. in the entertainment industry. Mm -hmm. So these committees and these organizations and these guilds that like have some level of influence that you know you can't just get into, you can't just apply for the guild. Uh, I think that there is an assu implicit assumption that okay, well that must be where the linearness comes yeah. from. There's got to be a linear path no, somewhere in there. There isn't. The not at all. And they're just it's a, it's 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 a it's a free for all. It's the, every year, like uh, uh, staffing season is like the Hunger Games every year. <laughs> it is. It's a living Hunger Hunger Games, and and but and, and you know, but so like you know, like sometimes you're up for a job against some of your friends, and you know, mm. it's 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 really frustrating. It, it can be really frustrating. It can be really heartbreaking. But I think when. What happens is like a writer will catch some luck and, and get hired on a show and stay on that show for a couple of years and move up the ladder and build a resume. And, and that kind of keeps them going. So it's like momentum. Once you catch some sure. momentum, you're, you're, it, then you're, that's, that's, that's what it, it really is. It's, it's about catching that momentum and, and riding it and keeping it going. Like I see a lot of uh, writers that came out of those programs with me that have had that kind of thing happen. And it's great. That's really it. It's you you got to catch that break and you've just got to keep the momentum going. But but like that, the early days are hard. Like the early days are tough. Like you, there's no guarantee. I, I tell people to definitely take the, take the fellowships into very serious consideration. Uh, I also tell people, you know, if you can afford it to look at trying to uh, get into the support staff world as a writing assistant or a writing PA, mm -hmm you know, uh, make friends with people who are doing those jobs and ask them how they got them and try to get their advice. WGA just started this really good writers like assistance program. I, I think some of the, I, I don't know, you got to look at the criteria before you apply. I don't know. I think it's not open to every everybody, but I think those who people who qualify should definitely consider that. Besides the fellowships, I, I think people should look at legit, some of the more legit, reputable competition platforms like I've seen people do really well with uh, a platform called Coverfly, mm -hmm. Screencraft, mm -hmm. Stage 32, and Road Roadmap Writers. Those are all different. I think two of those might overlap, but I think they're all different, mostly all different. And and that's the thing that didn't really exist when I was coming up. And I, I you know, I, I'm not endorsing them because out of my own personal experience, but I've seen people use those platforms to really good effect and basically the idea is you write you, you keep working on your material you upload your material you create a profile you submit to, to contests once you start placing you know your scores go up and and those companies are really de they're designed their business models to help people break in 
if they break if they break a writer, it's good for them. The more writers they break, the better it is for them because they can say, look, this is the list of writers that we broke, you know, and more people come to their site and spend money. You just have to choose the the strategies that work for you. For me, I was dead set on getting into a fellowship. So every year I would apply and I would try to get write better and, and build more relationships until I finally got into one of those. And that's what worked for me. But it's not the only path. Do you think the connections that you are making in the web series world like aided you in that way? Like your indie, what, how did your indie background influence your current career? A great question. Um, I think the things that translated, I was doing so much production on set a lot, like really just having to produce so that by the time I got to cover my cover set from my own episode, I was, I was really already sort of well-versed in production. Like writers, usually good showrunners will send their writers out to set to cover their, their, to basically produce their episodes. And so that really helped me a lot. I think that helped me get the job too, because I was able to say that I've produced like, you know, whatever it was at that point. And because production is scalable, like, you know, a four person crew operates very much the same way as a 40 person crew, you know, like it's just the hierarchy is different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, it's expandable. So I think the production experience helped, but in terms of like and, and just, again, that whole thing of like, that I said at the top of the, the podcast about, that was the time I spent writing and producing indie stuff before in building my credits. So that helped. But the two, I found the two worlds to be very separate. Like when I first got here to LA, I had all my friends that were in digital, that did digital stuff, but none of them had any connections or relationships, very r- little relationships be- between that world and TV. So I was like, trying to figure out it was it's like it was like starting from scratch again a little bit honestly interesting yeah the indie people tend to know each other and the yeah. traditional people tend to know each other and right very few bridges it sounds very like. few I, I for it was like that for me but i don't know for, it could be different for someone else i think there are bridges they're just fewer and further between is the the understanding that i've gotten because obviously you know we all have the the anecdotes off the top of our heads yeah. of like the Easter rays of the world right doing web series and getting picked up yeah yeah identified I mean, had obviously, you know, popular people. I think America Ferrera was always attached to it, yeah. but it, it went a f- technically from a web series to like a Netflix show. Yeah, I mean, the, the, so like those those exist. Yeah, those, <laughs> that that happens. That's that's a different thing. I think that's like uh, a, an indie creator make you know making the leap. Mm-hmm. And there's a bunch of those. Yeah, there's high maintenance. There was Broad City. Caleb Gallo technically got optioned by Lionsgate. I don't know if they are specifically developing more Gay and Wondrous Life of Caleb Gallo, but uh, Brian Jordan Alvarez was behind that. And I know he's he's gone on to bigger and better things, but that definitely launched him. So yeah, what I'm saying is anecdotally, those things happen. Yeah. And I think that a lot of indie people hope that that'll happen for them. But you know, just yeah. like getting into a fellowship, it's lightning in a bottle. There is an element of luck to it. Yeah. Yeah. But you just, you have to be in it to win it. I mean, you just, you got to do something. You have to write, you have to produce, you have to like, you have to, I, I, I just recommend having a strategy, whatever that is. Like, like I think doing things willy nilly, throwing spaghetti at the wall, maybe works for some people. But I think, you know, I, I think it really deciding where you where you want to be and and making everything you do serve in service to that goal, that vision that you have for yourself, I think is the way to go. Jack of all trades, master of none kind of I thing. I think so. Yeah, I think so. Because like, there's so much going on it's such a, it's a storm of activity here that you have to kind of be a laser about this is what I want to do. This is where I want to be. And this is everything I do is going to be uh, moving towards that goal. It's helpful, I think. Fair enough. Okay. So a final thing that I wanted to just chat about, since this is something that you and I have in common Mm -hmm. is grad school. We are both graduates of the Long Island University, Brooklyn's uh, writing and producing for television MFA. So I am curious, like what, what went into your decision to get a graduate degree? Did you go to film school before that? What have you, what did you get out of the program beyond, you know, a little bit of employment for a couple of years? Like what would, what would you say to people about your grad school experience, small and big? Well, I, I, like I said, I was doing a lot of digital stuff around that time. I still was doing it as I, when I was still in the program in the, in, in the writers, TV writer studio. And it, it just so happened, I don't know, I, I caught an ad somewhere, and I don't know, for, for, the, for, this, pan, for this presentation that Norman was going to give about it. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the description of it sounded really interesting. And I knew at the time... I've been doing all this digital stuff, collaborating with friends, doing a lot of work with friends and, and doing a lot of my own work. And I was actually, I, I was a web programmer by day, making six figures, making a pretty decent living, but really miserable and spending a lot of my own money 
writing and producing my own stuff. And I thought how wonderful it might be if I actually could get paid to do it instead of paying for it, right? Sure. You know, so my, my thoughts were gravitating towards television and trying to do it on that level. And so I saw an ad and I went to this presentation that Norman gave at this theater in LIU with a good friend of mine on my birthday. It was like on my birthday that year. And he gave this really compelling presentation. You probably saw it. You know, it's it's him on stage and Lewis Black is, is in this video talking about how great Norman is. I don't is. know if I ever saw that. No, because I was I was in college in Portland when I was I just Googled TV writing right. programs and it was one of the <laughs> ones on the list. Um, but you know, I have since seen Norman speak quite a bit, and it's it's hard to deny he's got a magnetism yeah, about him and enthusiasm. Yes, he's, he's got a lot of charm. And so he charmed me, uh, and I was like, "Wow, I really think I want to do this." And I applied, and I got in, and it was great. You know, it was the first year, and you know, like everything, it had its challenges and and, and its growing pains and its you know you know kinks that it needed to work out. But but what was really good and great about it was that again, the sense of community, and we got to write together. We you know we, we it operates like a like a like a uh, like a writer's room. It's supposed to anyway, <laughs> and, uh, and, yeah. and 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 but writers' rooms can be really dysfunctional too. So there was a lesson to be learned there, like you know, like how to operate within a room of people and, and make it work. You know, like it's so in some ways, it's some of the best training you'll ever get because like if you can make that room work well, you can make any room work well. Not that, and I'm not complaining. I'm saying that that you know that it's a room full of student writers who have no experience and so there's a lot of there's a lot of learning curve in terms of how to operate with other people and play well with other people right there's a that's the big lesson you're learning there because it's it's 12 people or 20 people who have never really had to do that before <laughs> so <laughs> as as chaotic as that could sometimes be like if you can figure out how to make that work with 20 people who've never done it before in various degrees of writing ability, some people just for the first time writers writing, some people have done it for a bit. So it's, you know, it's a very interest, interesting Petri dish that you're creating there, you know, <laughs> bad or good. Like I, I took away all the positives from it. And I think the positive was that that, that was great training for any kind of environment that you're ever going to find yourself in, in terms of like writer's rooms. And we wrote a couple, I wrote a couple of pieces out of that. I wrote my episode for the show that we created. I, I wrote an episode, a pilot, another pilot. We, we shot the thing we shot. <clears throat> I was the AD for our pilot. So that was a really fun experience and, and educational experience. And the relationships I built there were really valuable, especially with Norman. So mm-hmm. I think all, all those, you know, all those things, it's like anything. There's a, there are pros and cons and, and I think that, uh, but also case in point, my first job ever here in Hollywood was because of another cohort member. Oh, wow. Yeah, there was a, another student in the class that had been working for this company, this true crime production company, and got me uh, an interview with them. And I got my first job. And since then, I've only been out of work, really, when I chosen to be. Uh, out of work. So, so the thing, the big lesson to learn, to learn, I think with that in any other environment like that, or any other experience like that is are the relationships you build and to, you know, go in with things with as much positive energy as possible, because, you know, entertainment can be really chaotic and crazy too. I think this, this, the skills to take away are, are just about collaboration and positivity and being focused on the, on the goals at hand. Yeah, I think I, I definitely agree. Uh, and anyone who's curious about a deeper dive into film school, undergrad, film school, graduate programs, definitely check out our episode. I think it was our first official non-introductory episode of this podcast. So yeah. definitely go back and check that out where I talk in depth about my my experience yeah. a couple of years after Jorge, but um, sounds like it was not dissimilar. Yeah. I, I will also say having an MFA allows me to teach and two of my five jobs are teaching at the graduate level, which I would not be able to do That's without. Awesome. Yeah. So, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, obviously, we both. I've done a little bit of that too. The, the TV Writer Studio, like all in all, I think was a great experience, though. Like, you know, I, I, I think, like I said, it's sometimes a challenge to get a group of people like that together to collaborate, and and, and learning how to collaborate is is the job. I think that that experience is really great training, and you know, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the program. I'm a fan of Norman. Yeah, me too. Ken Ken runs it now. I'm a fan of Ken. 
Yep, Ken's doing some cool stuff. I, I, I once said something to Norman, and and I, I I swear to God, he's used it as the tagline for the program ever since. Like I in, inadvertently said to Norman once, every time I walk onto that lot of Steiner, I, I feel like I'm walking onto my future. He definitely uses that. <laughs> he uses that, right? I've heard him use you that. You've heard him oh, use yeah. that, right? Uh-huh. Oh my God. 100%. I have to start, char- have to start charging him for that. <laughs> Make it an NFT. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> Jorge, do you have anything? Yeah, I mean, just like, just inspirationally, like, just keep keep pushing. The, the, it's it's a tough business. It's tough to crack. You know, the 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 WGA thing is a little bit of a mystery. I hope I didn't mystify it a little bit now. But it's like, but it's also not the key. I think the, what the key is, like, once you you know, the key is to is relationships. Look, here's 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 my threefold or fourfold path. Like, basically, always be writing and always be improving your writing. That's number one. Your craft is Got the it. most important thing because like no one's going to hire you if you're a shitty writer. Uh, the second <laughs> thing is uh, be a good human being, you know, just, just be your best self. Like people want to work with people who aren't jerks because you're spending long hours a day with people in the same room. And when you go to production, it's really stressful and no one wants to work with someone who's making it more stressful. That's number two. The third one is is put yourself out there and meet people and mingle and build relationships and help people. You know, like that's like part of that is knowing when to ask for help, but also knowing when to to help other people because you can at any moment in the hierarchy of, of this journey, you could be a, as helpful to there's people behind you that you could be helpful to. So I, I think those are the three in tenacity. That's the fourth one. Just don't give up. Okay. A friend of mine, <laughs> here's another, a friend of mine, and this is, I, this is not to scare anyone, but this happens to people sometimes. They have trouble and, and with their careers and don't work for a while. And a friend of mine hadn't been in a room for almost 10 years and recently just got hired on a big show. Oh, wow. She was ready. She was like about to pack it in. And she was like, she gave it one more shot. And suddenly she's on, I can't, I don't want to say details because I don't want to uh, you know, give it away, but, but it was super inspiring. She didn't give up. And, and just as she thought she was going to, she got this really, really great gig. And, you know, I, I, it's not a story that I haven't heard. I've heard that before, you know, so hopefully it doesn't take that long for most people, but it happens. I think if you do all the things that I was talking about, the, the, my, my other three points, if you just, if you do all four points, eventually it'll happen. You just have to stay in the game and keep getting and keep producing stuff. Mm-hmm. I love yeah. that. That yes. That is an inspiring note to go out yeah. on. So Christina. <laughs> Thanks so much to Kelsey Rauber for our theme music, Kaylee Brown for our podcast art, Ezra Lee for editing this episode, and to all of you for listening. Links to learn more about them and Jorge, as always, are in our episode description. And thank you to our booby VIPs who are $10 patrons on Patreon. Shannon Sprangler, Jules Piggott, Rain Bernal, Kelsey Rauber, Jerry Maravia, Norman Steinberg, and Shana Rose Woolley. If you would like a name shout out at the end of every episode, please feel free to subscribe at patreon.com slash breaking out pod. So you get notified of all of our new episodes dropping every other Thursday, plus that great bonus content that we mentioned and to rate us five stars on your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already and beyond just the five stars, actually writing a review goes a really long way and we appreciate it every time. So thank you. Those of you who have done so already next episode, we are going to be talking about problematic faves and navigating art made by people who we aren't thrilled with uh, either from the beginning or have learned some things about them. So join us for that discussion, weigh in on social media and on email, and we will talk to you then.